0: Tonight's reading is Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon afterward, he went to a, a town called Nain, and his disciples in a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people, and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, James. And please, I would never hide communion wine in my coffee cup. It's whiskey. Um, So let's just get that out of the way. Um, Well, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, I'm really excited about what we get to do tonight. Tonight we are launching into a new sermon series. Uh, We're going to be spending time in this sermon series for about 15 weeks. We're pretty much going all the way up until Easter. And I think part of the reason I'm excited about this is actually there's there's a history of how this book, Love Walked Among Us, and the influence that uh, Paul Miller's ministry, who's the author of that book, has had on Redemption Church. It was a few years ago we brought Paul Miller out to do some basically staff trainings uh, with all the pastors of Redemption Church. Many of us read the book then. Um, I've read uh, Praying Life, and I'm currently working through Love Walked Among Us. And I think what, what was so exciting about it is just to see the way God was working through that ministry in the hearts of the pastors and the leadership here, and, and that we've really gotten to see what taking a close look at Jesus, what taking a close look at his personhood and, and the way he interacted has even affected us personally, how it's affected us as pastors, how it's affected us in the way we interact with our family. And because of that, because this has become such, I think, a personal thing for so many of us, we're just excited to share it with you guys. We're excited to bring you guys into what God has been doing in us, for many of us, for for years through the work and ministry of Paul Miller. Um, And we're not going to be preaching the book, we're going to be preaching the the stories of Jesus and the gospel stories, uh, but we're going to be using it as a rubric, and I'm really honestly just very excited about this. Um, You can tell by how I'm talking about it that I'm very excited about this. Um, What this series is, is quite simply, it it is a close-up slow-motion look at who Jesus is and, and as he is as a person. We are looking at the personhood of Jesus. We are looking at Not necessarily the theology surrounding Jesus, although we'll talk about that some. We're going to be asking the question, what would Jesus be like to just be with him? What was he like to, to walk alongside? What was he like to share a meal with? What was he like as he interacted with different people? What would he be like in conversation? What are the things that would make him sad? What are the things that would make him happy? What are the things that angered him or frustrated him? What are the kinds of people... And who are the kinds of people that he would spend his time with? How would he spend his time? What did he do in his free time? We're going to be focusing in on that because there's something powerful in looking at Jesus that way. And I really think that there's there's two reasons we're going to be doing this series. There's two reasons why we're going to be taking this type of look at Jesus. And the first is because God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. Now, before you think I'm undermining the deity of Christ, that's not what I mean. I'm not putting them against each other. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. We're referring to the same thing. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all one in the Trinity. Jesus is fully God, fully man. And so I don't mean that they are two separate entities. What I mean is that if you want to know what God is like, If you want to know the kind of uh, character, kind of personality that God had when he created the world, when he gave the law to Moses, when he rescued them out of Egypt, when he interacted with David, when he met Elijah in the whirlwind, that same God that did all of those things, if you want to know what that God is like, then we have to look at Jesus. We have to understand who Jesus is, what he was like, and how we interact in this world, because God is like Jesus. There's a Netflix show I've been watching lately called Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, and it's quite simply a show about comedians and cars getting coffee. Uh, it's, it's a show, Jerry Seinfeld does it, he goes and he gets these really cool cars that the, the knowledge about all those cars is completely lost upon me, I don't care. but. They get in these cars, they pick up these random comedians, and they go and they get coffee. And I think what's fascinating about this show, the reason why I think it's appealing to so many people is because these are all people that many of us have seen, like they do a thing with Will Ferrell, they do a thing with Jim Carrey. Uh, These are all people that we have seen in movies and in in performance-type contexts, but because we've only seen them there, we don't really know what they're like. And in this show, you get to see what they're like. You get to see what it's like to have a cup of coffee with Will Ferrell. And with some of these people, it makes them more interesting and more likable. With some of them, it makes them less interesting and less likable. But there is something powerful, and there's a unique perspective that you get on them in that type of context. What we're going to be doing over the next 15 weeks is really looking at Jesus through that type of lens. It's going to be as though we're sitting down and getting a cup of coffee with Jesus. We're going to see how he interacts, the kinds of conversations that he has so that we can know him more and ultimately know what God is like through that. The second reason I think we're doing this series and the second thing that I'm really excited about in this is that we are supposed to be like Jesus. It's not just that we get to know what God is like by studying and looking at Jesus. But we get to know what we're supposed to be like. See, the truth is that over time, as we follow Jesus, as we worship Him, as we grow and develop in our life as Christians, we should look and act more and more like Jesus looks and acts. The things that He cares about should become more and more the things that we care about. The things that He Uh, is frustrated by, should be the things that we're frustrated by, the perspectives that he has on the world, the kinds of people he is drawn to, the ways he spends his time. All of those things are things that we should be doing too as we grow in this. And so as we look at these throughout the next 15 weeks, I think we're going to get a glimpse into not just what God is like, but we're going to get a glimpse into what our lives will be like. And even though at times it's going to be a little hard to understand the beauty of what he's doing because what he's doing is so counter the way we're naturally wired to act. And ultimately, it is a way that he lives that will lead to his death. We realize that in not just the person that he was, not, he, not just the theological reality that he embodied, but the actual way he lived, the kind of person he was, is the way that leads to life. And through that, we'll get to know him in that. I mean, think about it. Uh, when we think about the idea of discipleship, when we talk about it in church when we throw that word around. I think most of us, including myself, immediately think of this idea of education. That what it means to be discipled is to be educated about somebody. Somebody. So if we say, well, I want to grow and, and be discipled more, we're like, okay, well, let's, let's go to a class. Let's read this book. Let's study this theology. And I agree that there is a part of discipleship that is education. We obviously do things like that here. But if it stops there, if discipleship ends there, and we only know about Jesus and don't really know Jesus, don't really spend time with him, then there's going to be something missing in our discipleship. When my wife and I first met and I started to, we started to date or tried to date, you know, I, uh, we ultimately did date. Uh, I don't know why I said tried to date. Um, I tried to date her for a long time before she was comfortable with reciprocating that reality. Um, when we were doing that, there was an education part to it. I wanted to know what her family was like. I wanted to know what she was doing in school. I wanted to know her favorite ice cream. I wanted to know all these things about her. Um, But the truth is, if I had wanted to know all those things and pursued learning all those things, but never spent time with her, never ate a meal with her, never interacted with her while she's with her friends or anything like that, then the truth is I would have just been a stalker. And that's creepy You can get to know somebody, and in fact, that's what it is. When you're getting to know somebody without really spending time with them, you're just stalking them. And if that was true for my wife, I think the nature of our relationship would be very different right now. If that's all I did, was I got to know facts about her and things about her, but never actually engaged with her. But I took that step, and and I got to know her in a personal way. In the same way, if we really want to be like Jesus, if we really want to know him the way that we are called to know him, the way that we are to spend time with him, then we need to actually take the step of moving beyond being educated about him and actually spending time paying attention to who he was like and what he was like in those contexts. There's really no substitute in how we know people for time and attentiveness. There's no other way of getting around it. If you wanna really know somebody, you just have to spend time with them and you have to pay attention. And that's the hope of what we're gonna be getting out of this. For the next 15 weeks, as we look at these different aspects, as we look at these small snapshots into the life of Jesus, our hope is that through this, one, we will get to know what God is like more and we will get a picture of what we are supposed to ultimately be like. Because what the life of a disciple is is not just to know about God, but to know Him, to follow Him, to emulate him and act like him, just as it says in Ephesians that we are to be imitators of God. And as we do this, and, and one of the things that shouldn't be a big surprise to us, but over the next 15 weeks, the character quali- or the character that most uh, succinctly summarizes who Jesus is. The the personality trait that we're going to be focusing in on the most that's just going to be coming to the forefront in all of this is that Jesus is loving. That through looking at Jesus we are going to get a glimpse into the nature of what it means to love. Of what it looks like to love. Jonathan Lehman Uh, wrote this, and I want to share this with you. It's going to come up on the screen. There it is. It says this, God is love, says scripture. It's one of weightiest and most precious truths imaginable for a Christian. God is love like oceans are wet and suns are hot. Love is essential. Love is definitional of God. The one who designed comets and acorns, who sustains our souls and bodies, who knows every one of our days before each comes to be, he is love. Yet slow down. We need to think about what the Bible means here. When it says God is love, it's not saying there's this thing out there called love and that God measures up to it. There's no dictionary definition of love hovering outside the universe, independent of God, so that God answers to it. Rather, God in himself provides the definition, the reality of what love is. Love is not an abstract concept, but a personal quality of God. And this is what we're going to see. If we want to know what this theoretical idea that God is love means, we get to by looking at Jesus. Jesus is the walking example of what it means that God is love. And further, as we look at these next few weeks, we're going to try to understand the nature of the basis of that love. Because as we see, God's love through Jesus is something unique. It is something radical. It is something special. It is something that the world desperately needs, but has a hard time emulating. And that's because God's love is founded upon the, the characteristic of compassion. That it's hard to talk about the love of God without talking about the compassion of God. And that's what I want to focus in on in the rest of uh, this evening's sermon. B.B. Warfield wrote this. Says, the says, The emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence that was summed up in the memory of his followers as a going through the land doing good, is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. When we look at Jesus as love, when we look at how he interacts in the world, we can't talk about his love without talking about how it starts always with his compassion. And with that, I want to read the story again. It was read right at the beginning, starting in verse eleven of chapter seven. It said this. Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with them. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her do not weep then he came up and touched the bier and the bearer stood still and he said young man i say to you arise and the dead man sat up and began to speak and jesus gave him to his mother fear seized them all and they glorified god saying a great prophet has arisen among us and god has visited his people and this report about him spread through the whole of judea and all the surrounding country. This is really a remarkable story, and there are so many incredible things that happen in the story. Uh, First off, we see that Jesus is is at the beginning of his ministry, and his ministry is doing really well. There's a large crowd already following him. They're following him because he's teaching people with authority. He's um, doing and performing these incredible miracles. He's healing people. People are following him because he's something that people have never seen before. He's unlike anybody else that they'd ever come across, and so he has this giant crowd following him. And by the end of this story, he performs one of his more incredible miracles. Although he does a number of different miracles, there's only a few times where he actually raises somebody from death into life. And this is one of those instances where this Man, who was by all accounts fully dead, not just mostly dead, but he was fully dead, comes back to life. Jesus does all of this stuff. There's incredible power in the work of what Jesus did. There's incredible power in the implications of what he did. At the end, when they're proclaiming that a prophet has arisen and that God has visited his people once again, there's this incredible connection between Uh, the Old Testament and what is being said there. And I want to point all of that out to you because we're not going to talk about any of those things for the rest of the time. As incredible as those things are, what I want to spend our time doing is actually focusing in on verse 13. Because what I want us to see and what I think will exemplify the character of Jesus' compassion is how Jesus interacts particularly with the widow. Now, a little bit of information on the widow. Uh, we don't know much about her, but we know that she is a widow and that she just lost her son. And without knowing anything else about the culture, that in and of itself is tragic. And all of the things that somebody in that situation would feel, she was, I'm sure, feeling that at the time. And, and we know that the town knew that this was a... a bad thing that happened to him because they all came out to support her in this but there's more to it than that it wasn't just the emotional grief of losing her husband and losing her son but by doing that because of the culture because of the way in which people and particularly women were supported in that culture losing her husband and losing her only son was basically sentencing her to a life of poverty In those days, it was men who made money. That was how it worked. That was how the family structure worked. Now, when she became a widow, uh, oftentimes that in and of itself can send a woman into poverty. But she had a son, and by cultural norms, that son would have ultimately been taking care of her. Uh, And we actually see that it's probably a, a grown son, so he probably already was providing for his mother at the time. And so not only is she experiencing this depth of emotional loss and grief in this moment, but she is realizing that the rest of her life is pretty much gone. Any hope she had of being supported, any hope she had of anything like that was gone. Uh, there's other places, like Naomi, in the book of Ruth, when this happens, she describes herself as, as almost like a half-dead. That, yeah, she's a living, but she might as well be dead because there's nothing there to support her. There's no one there to help her. This woman, this widow, is in the same spot. And so Jesus enters into this scene, and he does something not just miraculous through what he does with her son, but I think he does something miraculous in the life of this woman. He does something radical in the life of this woman, and that's simply that he shows her real, genuine, complete compassion. So let's look at what this looks like. What is it that Jesus actually did? Starting in verse 13, we see the very first thing And it's where Jesus always begins his compassion. It says, and when the Lord saw her. Jesus' compassion starts with seeing her. Jesus saw her. You have to understand that this would have been a chaotic scene. You have this giant crowd following Jesus. In those days, the same uh, is true for now that a funeral procession is going to take precedence over traffic. And so this crowd would have come into the city. They would have seen this funeral procession. They would have been kind of pushed to the sides of these very narrow streets. And this procession would have come through. It would have been chaotic. There would have been so many other things that Jesus could have been looking at. He could have been looking at, at the, the dead uh, man being walked along in this wicker basket type thing, above the heads of the people. He could have been looking or listening to or being distracted by the mourners, the paid mourners that would have been following this procession, shouting and crying and lamenting. He could have been looking at all of those things. But in all of that crowd and all of the grief, he picks the person who was bearing the deepest grief. He picked the person who for the rest of her life would probably be the least likely to be looked at, in a scene like that. And he looks at her. He sees her. This isn't the kind of seeing where he just looked and then looked away. He sees her and he understands what she's going through. He has an attentiveness in what he's doing. Jesus sees her. it's important that this is where we understand Jesus' love and compassion, starting with. It is always rooted in a direct response to what he sees. And we're gonna, I want us to pay attention over the next 15 weeks to what Jesus sees. He says in Matthew 6 that the eyes are the lamp of the body, that, that, that what we take in through our eyes are really what defines our heart, what defines what we want, what defines how we are formed. And he says that in Matthew 6, actually, in the context of understanding idolatry. He later, in that same section, says, and that's why you can't serve both God and money. But if we take that principle and we actually apply it to Jesus, I think we learn something incredibly important about Jesus and about the person of Jesus. Because Jesus' eyes were filled with constantly with the needs and suffering of other people. That is what Jesus spent his time looking at. He was looking at the needs of other people. He was looking at people who were suffering. In the midst of a chaotic crowd, he picked them out. He pursued this because this was something that was ultimately important to him. Jesus' life, his priorities, were defined by what he saw, by what he chose to look at. And so it's important that we understand that his love and compassion starts with what he saw. There's oftentimes I'll read this, and I was thinking about this this week, even looking at my own life, and asking the question, why is it that I struggle sometimes to see like Jesus? Because I don't think we're living in a particularly unique time of history where there is somehow less people suffering in this world. People are suffering all the time. People are broken all the time. But I don't see it all the time. And, And as I thought about it, I realized that it's not necessarily because I'm cold. It's not necessarily because I don't care about people. But it's because I fill my eyes with just other things. It's hard to see the needs and the suffering of other people when all we're looking at is stuff or ourselves or things that we like. And this is some of the reflective things that we need to see as we look at Jesus. That Jesus chose to see suffering. And if we want to live and pursue and respond like Jesus, we have to take an inventory of what fills our eyes. We see here that Jesus saw her. After that, in verse 13, it says this. He had compassion on her. So not only do we see that Jesus saw her, but that Jesus felt for her. This idea of compassion is that he actually feels it in in his gut. That the emotional grief that this woman bore, he allowed himself to feel those same emotions. He entered into that grief. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't ignore it. He didn't put a wall up. He didn't try to distract himself. He let him feel the weight of this woman's sadness. and He was moved to compassion. He felt what she felt. I think we have an aversion to feeling these things. And I know this is true because I remember uh, when TV was a thing that we watched uh, and there were commercials, there would be those pet adoption commercials that would come on and you have Sarah McLaughlin playing in the background and these sad puppies just staring at you and kittens. And I'm not even a cat person, but I felt so sad. And I would just change the channel because I don't want to feel that. Nobody wants to feel that. Maybe you do want to feel that, but I didn't want to feel that. So I would change the channel. What it looks like, Jesus is the kind of person who watches the whole commercial, lets the whole arms of the angel play out, feels all of the feels, stares into the puppy's eyes and cries along with it. He allows himself to feel all of it. He allows himself to have compassion. So Jesus saw her. Jesus felt for her. And then he takes the next step. At this point in time, there's been no interaction. He has seen her and he has taken the time to process through what this woman is going through. He has allowed himself to feel the very apparent emotions that this woman is feeling. But so far in the story, all we're seeing is something that is passive. What we see next brings him into an active state. So what he does next is that Jesus spoke to her. It he says, and he said to her, Do not weep. He spoke to her. He engaged with her. He took something that was distant, he took something that was separate, and he made it personal and close. He spoke with her. You have to think about this because this wasn't just a passing comment. He had to work to say something to this woman. There was a crowd of people surrounding him. He was boxed in on the side. There was mourners, there was townspeople. There was a lot of chaos happening. That means that he had to cut through everybody. He had to work through all of these people to come up to this woman and say what he said to her. This took effort. This took a drive. He was laser-focused. In order to accomplish what he did. And he spoke to her. And I love what he spoke to her. And really actually what he didn't speak to her. Because in that time. And this was just the cultural understanding of why death happened at that time. Is this if a religious leader were to have spoken to this woman. Most likely the question they would have asked her. Is what did you do wrong? Now that's not biblical. Biblical. But that is the way they oftentimes interpreted this. If, if a woman's husband died and her only born son died, most people would ask the question, "Well, what did she do wrong to bring this suffering upon herself? That is what a lot of the religious leaders, if they were to have spoken to her, would have said to her. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't speak judgment into her. He doesn't ask her these questions. Not only does he make something distant, close it makes something passive active, but he makes something that is, that is uh, despairing, and he makes it hopeful. He doesn't speak judgment to her. He speaks hope to her. He says, do not weep. And this isn't a platitude. This isn't him trying to just stop the emotions from doing this. He's saying this to her because he's about to do something even greater for her. And he knows that this is coming. So he's telling her. He's engaging with her. He's becoming uh, a friend to her by speaking to her and engaging. After he has done all these things, then we get to what we oftentimes start with, which is the action that brings about justice. Jesus, after all of this, acts on her behalf. He does ultimately seek justice, and it's very important that he does do this, but it's important that we see that he does this after those other things. This is not where he started. This is where he ended after he saw her, after he had compassion upon her, after he spoke with her and engaged with her. Then, after all of those things, he acted on her behalf. One of the things that I really love about this story is really the story is about Jesus and this woman. Everybody else, including the son that is raised from the dead, whom you think would be the main act and the main part of this story, are really just side notes to what Jesus is doing in the life of this woman. There's other instances in which Jesus raises people from the dead. And in various instances, he'll sometimes say, Uh, You know, I showed this to the disciples, but I really don't want you talking about this to anybody else, which I always thought was weird because the news is going to get out that this person that everybody knew died is now walking down to the store to buy something. But in that regard, he actually does care about how this is perceived. In this story, he doesn't care. This isn't about the crowds. He doesn't do this and then just start high-fiving the people around him. He doesn't present this person to the crowds. He doesn't care because what he is doing is showing love and compassion to the woman. She is the point of this miracle. And really, I think the deeper miracle that we see is not just the raising of the son, but the restoration of the woman. That's what God is accomplishing in this. The God through Jesus, is acting on her behalf. He is doing everything he can, having seen her, having been moved by her, having spoken with her, he then takes the full weight of his po- power and capabilities and does everything that he can to restore her. And we know that this, even the act of raising her son, was really something done for her because afterwards, the first thing he does when this guy who is dead gets down and just starts talking, and I would love to know what he was saying, I think that would be really interesting. What do you say after you come back to life? He walks, her, walks him over and he presents him to the mother. This was something that Jesus did from the very beginning. He saw her, he felt for her, he spoke with her, and he acted on her behalf. This is the nature of Jesus' compassion. And so as we look at this, we begin to see that this is really what it means for us to have compassion. What does it mean for us to interact in this broken world with loving compassion? And the same way that Jesus did with this woman is the same way that we are to do it now. The first thing that we need to do is we need to see. We need to see the people that are around us. Not just look not just acknowledge that there are people around us, but really actually see them. Uh, I'll sometimes have conversations with uh, different um, either pastors from out of town or other people that I know that don't live in Phoenix, and they'll ask me, what is something that is unique about the city of Phoenix from a, a um, spiritual problem? What, what is something unique that confronts the spiritual growth and the spiritual depth of the city of Phoenix. And, and the thing that I always respond with is that Phoenix is an incredibly isolated city. Although it's, it's giant, so many people live here, it is an isolated city. Some of it's because of the heat, some of it's because of the way we built our neighborhoods, some of it's all, there's so many different factors. We live in a city where you can wake up in the morning, you can walk to your garage, you can get in your car, you can get on a road that we will get on a freeway and avoids all the suffering neighborhoods that you don't want to see, and go to your job, go in there, only interact with who you want to, get back in your car, go back on the freeways, go back in your neighborhood, pull into your garage, and never once see anybody or interact with anybody. We live in an isolated city. We're not necessarily unique, there's other cities like this, but this is a particular challenge. In our context living in Phoenix, that we actually have to work hard to see other people in this city. That's not the natural way this city was meant to work. And not only that, but we are now also living in a culture that isolates us, whether we realize it or not. That the social media, the news, all of the things that we consume are actually algorithmically uh, developed so that if we don't like something, it's not going to show us those things. And I say that to say that even though this seems like this is so basic, that it almost seems too easy to be something that is following Jesus. But as we look at it and we realize that this is going to be so challenging for us, Seeing people the way Jesus sees people, seeing our family, seeing our neighbors, seeing the people on the other side of of the city that we don't know, that we're not like, seeing the suffering that people have, seeing the brokenness that exists all around us takes work. It's going to take effort. It's going to take discipline because we are living not just in a peculiar local context, but in a larger cultural context that pushes against this idea of seeing things that makes us uncomfortable. And so we are first going to have to start with seeing, and it's important we start there. I know we hear these sermons about this idea of compassionate love and doing justice for one another, and we want to just go out and do something, and yes, we should ultimately do something, as we will talk about But we need to start by just seeing, by taking the time to see. And this could even start at your home. I know I can be guilty of coming home and looking and recognizing that my family is around me, but not ever taking the time to truly see them. That we can live in a house with people and not see anybody. And so I want to challenge us to even just start there see your roommates. See your family. See your spouse, your children. See your coworkers. Take the time to try to understand why they feel the way they feel, why they act the way they act. Recognize them in situations. Take the time to see. Because it's going to take effort. The next thing we as Christians should do as we respond to this is to allow ourselves to feel. And this, I'm just going to tell you, is going to be really inconvenient. It's going to be really obnoxious and annoying at first. Because there's going to be times when things happen and you don't want to feel sad with somebody. You don't want to feel any of these things with people. But that's what the life of Jesus looks like. He was constantly interrupted by the feelings of other people. And instead of ignoring them, instead of pushing them away, he felt alongside them. The Bible talks about this, right? We are to mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. And it says this, I think, for a very good reason. Emotions, all of these emotions, one of the most dangerous things we can do with emotions Is isolate them. Is isolate them. And I'm not just talking about grief and sorrow and sadness. I'm talking about joy and happiness. Those were things that were meant to be shared with other people. Those were things that were meant to be experienced in the context of other people with you. That both joy and sadness are meant to be shared. And so, as Christians, as we respond, as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we're going to have to prepare ourselves for the discomfort of feeling with people. It's going to mean your life is going to be characterized by constantly feeling other people's emotions. And if you think that sounds exhausting, it is. It is going to be exhausting. Well, what you'll also find, and, and, and you're going to have to just trust me, I think, initially on this, is that as you do that, what you're going to see is there's deep life found in actually commiserating and having compassion with other people. As you feel alongside people, you'll realize that that is where the beauty of human interaction and relationship is found. So as we respond to this and as we look at what it means to live with love and compassion, we start by seeing, and then we feel. And then we need to take the awkward and uncomfortable step of speaking and entering into the relationship with the people that are around us that we're seeing and that we're feeling compassion for. And this is a hard one, particularly if you are like me and you are an introvert who does not like to have conversations with people. Now I know that seems, maybe seems a little weird. I spend a lot of time talking to people a lot, but that's because I can control everything about this situation. When I'm in conversation, I have no control and I freak out and I don't like it. Um, And it's not you, it's me. So if you've been in an awkward conversation with me, I apologize. Um, It was not your fault, it was my fault. Um, This is most exemplified, by the way, when I try to order something in a drive-through. It is one of the most terrifying experiences of my life, and it's probably really, really terrifying for the person I'm trying to order from. I just, I lose it, I think I'm talking to a robot, I don't understand it. If they ask me a question that wasn't exactly what I prepared, I just freeze, it's uncomfortable, I don't like it. Now there's some people that are really natural at this, and when I say, hey, you're gonna have to speak to people who are in the midst of grief and hurting, you're like, that's great, I, I can do that in my sleep. I'm saying that this is true for me, too. That even me, who feels that most of the time I'm spending my time in a conversation that I would prefer to not be having, that's how I describe oftentimes my life, even me, I am called to speak into those situations. I'm called to take the initiative to talk, to engage with people, to build relationship with people, to enter into this awkwardness that oftentimes happens, particularly when we're speaking to people suffering through grief. And just an observation that I've seen both in my life and in just our world and our context right now, is is we have no idea how to talk to people in the midst of grief. We have no idea how to talk to people that are grieving. And I think because of that, because we don't want to say something stupid, we don't want to say something hurtful, or inappropriate, we oftentimes fall back. We just choose not to say anything. But as I look at this, and I've, and I've walked through this with people before, I think one of the worst things we can do is say nothing and ignore the fact that somebody is grieving and hurting. And so one of the things that I want to challenge you to is to speak, even if you don't necessarily know what you're going to say. Even if you're crossing over cultural boundaries and... and, and backgrounds and you're talking to somebody that you have absolutely nothing in common with. That you have no idea what you're going to talk about. Take the first steps and speak. Engage in those conversations. Make something that could be very easily passive and distant personal. Speak into it. And last, and it's important that this is what happens On top of those three other things is that we are to act. That is when we ultimately look and see, okay, I've seen this person, I feel what they're feeling, I've spoken with this person, I've gotten to know this person, I understand why they're hurting, I've been able to speak to them. That's when you ask, okay, well, what do I have that can help? What can I do to help rectify this? now? there's a good chance you're not going to be able to fix everything. There's a good chance that afterwards, unless you have some superpower to raise people from the dead that we don't know about, that you're not going to be able to do this the same way that Jesus did this. But we have incredible resources within ourselves. And I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about uh, the education we have, our family background, the ability to just listen and be with people. There's incredible things that God can use us to do to act and bring about justice and mercy in the midst of a fallen and broken world. And that should always be the end of our compassion. What I love about this and what, I, what we see with Jesus is that it's not just one of these things. You never see Jesus looking around and saying, oh, look, it, there's, there's a bunch of lepers. And then he just walks away. That's not the story that you read in in the Bible. It's not like, and he's not out there just kind of writing checks and sending them wherever they need to go. Jesus is doing all of it. He sees them, he feels for them, he speaks with them, and he acts on their behalf. And it's important that we as Christians, as we live this life of compassion, follow suit. Paul Miller writes this, he says, Jesus has shown us how to love. Look, feel, and then help. If we help someone, but don't take the time to look at that person and feel what he or she is feeling, our love is cold. And if we look and feel, but don't do what we can to help, our love is cheap. Love does both. Let me pray. Lord Jesus... As we respond to you, God, as we hear this story, God, I pray that you would give us eyes that can actually see the way you see people. That we can not just um, notice that there are people around us, but you'd give us eyes that actually can see them for where they are, for who they are, for what, is, what, is, um, what they're struggling with, what they're hurting from. And give us eyes that can see that. Lord, give us the ability to feel alongside them. God, the weight of doing that, Lord, is something that we cannot bear, so we ask for your spirit in that, Lord. We ask for your power to sustain us as we enter into the suffering, the mess, and the feelings of the people around us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to speak and to engage, Lord, to take that step to make a distant thing close Lord, and to be personal with people. And God, ultimately, I pray that you'd give us the courage to act, or to do what we can to restore people. Lord, as you have restored us, Lord, as you have exemplified in how you restored the widow, Lord, I pray that you would be working in our hearts, Lord, working in the life of the church, to help us to love as you love, and show compassion as you show compassion. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.